Good morning, church. Hope you guys are all having a great week and you're excited about today. Excited about the, what God is going to do with you and through you today. And hope you're excited about just waiting the Lord's Supper at the end of church today. It's been months and months since we've been able to do Lord's Supper together, at least five or six months as a church because it was pretty much locked down. But even before that, we used to do it well once a quarter. And um, just as we got ready to do it again uh, back in February, February, early March, uh, that's when all the lockdowns took place. So it's been quite a while since as a church we've been able to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So I'm excited. I love partaking the Lord's Supper. And on your seats around you, you'll see there's a piece of paper there. It just talks a little bit about what the Lord's Supper is. Uh, for those who are at home, watching at home, we'll post this on our Facebook page later. It just kind of explains to you why Lord's Supper is important, what the community is, why you can feel free to take that with you and, uh, and explain and talk to it, talk about it with your kids, uh, talk to it about with others when you're, you're asking you why is thinking Lord's Supper, why is that important? What do we need to do to prepare ourselves before we come to church? Because it's a great opportunity for us to remember what God has done for us. See, because once we remember what God has done for us, hope for all the things that are going on in this world around us, our hope rises, right? We've been talking about hope and how to have hope in this world, how to have hope during this time of crisis, how to have hope during this time of pandemic and everybody seems to be angry at one another and everybody's just fighting with one another. Hope allows us to see beyond our circumstances to what God wants us to do and how God wants us to be involved and engaged in the lives of those around us. Hope provides so much for us. Last week as we were talking, or two weeks ago rather, as we were talking about the idea of having hope and how Jesus was the hope bringer and the hope giver, we shared the story about the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And how they were kind of depressed and they were talking to themselves about what it was that all the events that had been taken transpired. Jesus walks up next to them and they're kept from recognizing him. And so there he says, what is this you're talking about, right? And they're like, what do you mean what is this we're talking about? We've been talking about all the events for the past three days and we're talking about this Jesus who came and he taught us for three years and then he was crucified and he was dying, he was killed and he was buried. And now this tomb is empty. And their hope had been crushed because, as it said in Luke 24, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was going to be the one that was going to be the Messiah, the one that was going to redeem Israel, right? And so it says Jesus took them and began explaining to them about, from the Old Testament, all that the Messiah had to do how he had to come, how he was going to teach, but also how he had to die for everybody, how he had to be crucified, how he had to suffer. And they began to explain to them, and then as they got to their destination, Jesus made like he was going to keep on walking, kind of did a head fake. And they said, no, no, don't keep walking, it's late in the evening. Why don't you come in and join us? Come in and join us for a meal. And so as they sat down with him for the meal, he began to explain even more. And we talked about how, as God's children, we must first invite him into our circumstance, which is what they did. They invited him into their conversation. 
And we have to yield to him and give over our desires for his desires to let him come in. We invite him in and we yield. So today we're going to pick up from there and go on and find out what happens when we invite him into our lives, when we invite him into our circumstances, and then we yield our circumstances to him. What can happen? How can hope grow in us? How can hope become contagious enough in our lives that the world around us sees Christ in us and Christ in our circumstances and yearns for what we have? Because that's the real goal, is as we live our lives in such a way, we let our light so shine before men that they see our good works, they see our hope, and they glorify God in heaven. It draws them to the foot of the cross to seek and to find Jesus. Now there are many times when we can live hopeless. Satan wants to discourage us. Satan wants to distract us. Satan wants us to be depressed. And hope, because of Christ, overcomes all those things. So let's look this morning and what can happen when we yield our circumstances to Christ. Number one, when the hope, when the God of hope shows up, so do his promises. When the God of hope shows up, so do his promises. His promises for you, his promises for me, his promises for our future. I mean, think for a second about Abraham. Abraham, 99 years old. 99 years old. And God walks up to him in Genesis chapter 17. And he, re he says this. It says, when Abraham was 99 years old, Genesis chapter 17, verse 1 to 8, it says, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now remember, up to this point, Abram and his wife Sarai were barren. They didn't have any kids. If they had given up decades and decades and decades earlier that they were ever going to have kids, that they were ever going to have descendants. And Abraham had already gone out and found like his, one of his nephews and had brought him in and made him his heir to all, all that he had because he didn't have any kids. Look at verse 3. It says, it says then Abram fell on his face, recognizing presence of God in his midst right there. Remember, recognizing that God was there, his presence was right there. And verse 4 says, Behold, God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. A multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, for your name shall be Abraham. You still have no kids, but now I'm changing your name from the father of a great nation to a father of multitudes and here he's still got no kids now as Abraham goes out now to introduce himself under his new name people kind of turn an eye and go really is that what you want to call yourself the father of a multitude of nations no longer shall your name be Abraham but you shall your name shall be Abraham for I have made you 
the father of a multitude of nations. Verse 6, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their Did any of that seem to rely on Abraham's ability to come to fruition, to fulfill it? Did any of those things that God stated there rely upon Abraham to be good enough, to be holy enough, to sing well enough? Did any of that rely on Abraham? We look back in, in verse 5 and in verse 6 and in verse 7. God says, I have made you a father. I will make you fruitful. I will make you into great nations. I will establish this covenant. And I will be their God. That is God saying, I'm showing up. I'm right here. I'm the God of hope. And I'm making you a promise that I will be with you forever. What do you think entered into Abraham's mind? Has he heard that? Heard the promises of God. Maybe a little wonder, a little question, a little awe that God would select him. God had already chosen him out of all the people of the land of Ur. He says, you go and leave your people. You leave your fathers and your, and your brothers and your sisters and you travel to land that I'm going to take you to. He travels up all the way across the Fertile Crescent into Canaan, into what is now modern day Israel. And God said, I'm giving you this land. He already followed God all that time without a descendant. But God had a plan because God is all about bringing glory to himself, to bring glory to his name, lifting himself up. And if we happen to get glorified in the, in the process so, so much the better, but our purpose and our, our job is not to lift ourselves up, to not lift our church up, to not point the fingers at me and say, look at how what a wonderful guy I am. Look at what a wonderful preacher I am. Look at how great I, I can preach. Look at how great our worship team is. Look at whatever. Our purpose is to glorify God. Behold our God seated on the throne. Man, let his name be praised. Let his name be glorified. Period no matter what the circumstances going on around us. The God of hope showed up and his promise shows up as well. Abraham's 99 years old and God makes an impossible promise. The impossible promise. You're going to have a child from Sarah, your wife, who's 89 years old. Her womb is way past being fertile by man's reckoning. But nothing is too great for God. God opens up her womb. She has a child a year later at 90 years old. Women, how'd you like to be a new, brand new mom at 90 years old? Dad, how'd you like dads, how'd you like to be a brand new dad? First time dad at 100 years old. I remember when my first daughter was born, she was, was in 1994, so I was pushing 25. 
I was a first time dad, scared to death at 25. My wife looked at me, she's like, that's okay, I'll teach you everything you need to know. <laughs> right, all dads are going, yeah, we need our wives to help us. But imagine living your whole life, 100 years old, you're set, all of your bad habits are set, and now you have gotta change to become a dad, to become a father, to become an example for this child, who's gonna be the promised one. No pressure, no burdens. <laughs> Me, I'd be scared to death. And yet Abraham just seems to kind of roll with it. It was, an easy, it was not an easy trust case for Abraham, I'm sure, trusting God. But you know, Scripture reminds us, and this is something you can mark down, Scripture reminds us in John 16, Jesus said, in this world you shall have tribulation. Life is not going to just go easy. Jesus says, you shall have tribulation. Not you might have tribulation, or maybe have tribulation. You will. You shall have tribulation. Sometimes that'll be some, something of our own doing. Some decision we've made that's brought tribulation on ourselves. Sometimes it's brought upon us by nothing we've done. Maybe it's by our kids and decisions they made. It's come on by a boss or a coworker or some accident or some health issue that just kind of comes on us. You will have tribulation. But it's in this tribulation times, it's in those times of trials, it's in those times of questioning that our faith is deepened. Would you agree with that? Because during those times when we struggle, we question and we look at what God has done and we look at the answers and what he's promised us and we don't know the answer when our all we do is we cry out God why God why why is this happening to me why is my son or my daughter walking away from the faith why is my wife angry at me again why am I losing my job why is this health situation coming on me why 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 it's during those tribulation times that our faith grows and is deepened. It's okay to ask why. It's okay to question. You listen and you wait for God to answer. You listen and you wait for God to answer. We're not promised an easy life. It's not as the book title says, your best life now. We will struggle in this life. We have an enemy out there, Satan, who wants us to fail. He wants us to get discouraged. He wants us to fall. And yet even in those times when hopelessness is seemingly out of control, the God of creation brings hope where little resides. Look at Abraham's response in verse 18. Well, actually Romans chapter four, verse 18. Paul says it this way. Said it was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Those who live by law are heirs. Faith has no value and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, the Israelites, 
but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. We have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom we believe. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Look at verse, listen to verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Against all hope, hope says. That's a description of faith in the midst of the obstacles of life, against all hope, against what had been promised, against what was could be seen with his eyes, against what science told him. Against all hope, Abraham placed his hope and his trust in God. Sarah, 89 years old, wasn't gonna have a, daughter, gonna have a kid of her own. Her womb had closed up. There's no chance, scientifically speaking, that anything was gonna happen. Huge obstacle. But in that, God produced big faith in Abraham. Sarah doubted, Abraham believed. Sarah laughed, Abraham believed. His faith grew. So when the God of hope shows up, his promises show up and keep us moving forward. Secondly, when the God of faith, when the God of hope shows up, so does his revelation. When the God of hope shows up, so does his revelation, his word to us. Back in Genesis verse, chapter 18, verse 1, it says, The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre, while he was sitting there at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day, just chilling, just relaxing. He'd been out there tending his sheep, managing all of his properties, managing all of his stuff. And God shows up. Abraham doesn't have any clue who he is. Abraham looks up and sees three men standing nearby in the heat of the day. And when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them, and he bowed low to the ground. See, Abraham assumed this was just a kingly man and maybe a couple of servants that were with him, a couple of his princes that were with him traveling. He goes up and he runs to meet him in the heat of the day when he could have stayed in his nearest tent and waited for them to approach. Abraham goes out to these men to show them hospitality, to invite them in. God's presence was there. God's presence was real. Abraham didn't well recognize the yet. So in verse 3, Abraham says to them, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, little L, don't pass by. Come and join me. See, that word there in Hebrew, Lord, is not the word Lord like God, Yahweh. It's the word Lord like sovereign or king or prince. So if I found favor, please, my Lord, please, my Lord, come and join me. Get out of the heat of the sun. Come and join me in my tent and experience some of the hospitality that we can give you here. Let me, I want to be, honor me with your presence. He shows true humility and hospitality in spite of knowing who it was that he was getting ready to entertain. 
After he prepares the meal for them, eats with them, hearing them declare about the upcoming pregnancy, they're talking about it, and, he, and the men hear Sarah's laughter. Because they tell him, say, Abraham, when we come back in a year, you're going to have a child. And in the next 10 over, Sarah, <laughs> what do these men know? She laughs. They hear it. Because it's God. Genesis 18, verse 10 through 14 says, The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Well, that would be getting Abraham's attention. He hadn't maybe mentioned anything about it. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him, and Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have worn out, my Lord is old. Shall I still have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why does Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed, indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah shall have a son. Not your nephew, not Ishmael, but your with your servant Hagar, but Sarah herself will bear your son by this time next year. Abraham quickly realizes that this is not just a king, an earthly king. He recognizes God for who he is. That God is the Lord of Lords, King of Kings is in his presence. Then the next verse, verse 17, the Lord is talking to his two angels that are with him. He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? They go out and they look over the plains, over Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, shall I reveal to Abraham or shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do to this land? And then that's when Abraham enters into this dialogue with God. It's like, God, if, they, if there are 50 people who are righteous in the city, will you spare it? God says, for 50, I will spare it. God, if there are 10 people in the city who are righteous, will you spare it? God says, if there are 10 people who are righteous in the city, I will spare it. I couldn't even find 10 people in the city. But God sends his angels ahead into the city, he calls upon Lot, says, Lot, let's get you and your family out of here. Let's get you and your family, you and your daughters and your wife, let's get you all out of here. Your sons along. Let's get them all out. To save you from what's coming. See, when God shows up, he reveals to Abraham about the destruction that's going to happen in those cities. He lets Abraham know what is about to come. When the God of hope shows up, he lets us know what his will is for our lives as well. You may wonder, God, I don't, I'm clueless about what to go, where to go. God, I'm clueless about what job to take. God, I'm clueless about what your will is for my life. Invite the God of hope to show up and listen. Invite and yield. Invite and 
He gives us insight into his plans for us and the city so we can join him in the work that he's doing. Because it's not about us. What we're trying to do to impact our city and our state and our country is not about us. It's about letting God work through us into the lives of those around us. When God shows up, He brings his revelation. Thirdly, when the God of hope shows up, so do his prayers for you. When the God of hope shows up, so do his prayers for you. Now, this is exciting. When you think about this, God's prayers for you are ongoing, continual. He's praying to himself, essentially. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, and he intercedes for us to the Father. Praying that we will have success. Praying that we will be able to overcome temptation. Praying that we will be able to understand and know the will of God. Jesus is praying for you right now. In the midst of your hopelessness, in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your health issues, in the midst of your job issues, in the midst of all the concerns that are going on around us, Jesus is praying for you. I hope that brings you a little sense of joy, a little sense of peace this morning, knowing that Jesus is praying for you. And how do we know that? Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Turn your Bibles and join me there for a second. Mark chapter 6. Jesus, our high priest, sends the disciples in, back out to the Sea of Galilee to cross the Sea of Galilee ahead of him. It was the same at chapter 6, verse 45. It says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of them, out ahead of him to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after leaving them, he went up on the mountainside to pray. Jesus, after being with the crowd, after feeding 5,000, after performing many miracles, went up to the mountainside to pray for his disciples for the upcoming meetings he was going to have, for strength for himself to regain his strength. His strength didn't come from eating a pizza. His strength didn't come from taking a nap. His strength didn't come from any of these things that we humans get strength from. His strength came from spending time with the Father in prayer, from garnering his power right there from his prayer. And that same high priest that was praying for his disciples prays for us today. As I mentioned earlier, he's sitting on the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. He sees what's going on in our lives. He hears the, prayer, the cries of us as we cry out to God. He knows where our struggles are. More intimately than we do. And he is interceding on our behalf. He's the God of hope. Hebrews 7, 25 and 26 says it this way. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you know that Jesus lives to make intercession for you, to intercede on your behalf? Verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, such a high priest, holy, innocent, 
unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's our high priest. Behold our God, seated on the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. For all of eternity, around the throne of God, those beings are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. For all of eternity, that's all they're saying. Proclaiming the glory and the holiness of God. We have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Praying for us. Praying for us. He lives to make intercession for them and for us as well. So the high priest intercedes. The high priest Jesus noticed their struggles. At three in the morning, he breaks from prayer. The fourth watch of the night, he looks out and sees the disciples struggling on the oars, struggling on the oars, just going, just pulling, just pulling, just pulling. How long have they been rowing? I have no clue what time Jesus dismissed them. A long time. Pulling on the oars, pulling on the oars, pulling on the oars, struggling against the wind, struggling against the waves. Verse 47, Mark 6, when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples struggling at the oars. It was a long way away. You ever seen them, how big the Sea of Galilee is? You look on a map, it's, it's a really big lake. And he was sending them across the lake to the other side, to Bethsaida. And yet from his pinnacle there on top of the mountain, Jesus could see them. Maybe not with physical eyes, but he saw them with his spiritual eyes. And he saw them struggling. And he sees your struggles too. Jesus sees your struggles. He hears your prayers. He knows what's going on in your heart. He knows your fears. He knows your joys. He knows intimately what is going on inside of you. He noticed the struggles. He is the omniscient, all-knowing one. He knew them. He knows you. He sees you. Our hope should rise in knowing that nothing escapes his attention. When you're struggling with one of your kids, it does not escape the attention of God. When you're struggling with your parents, it does not escape the attention of God. When you're struggling with your spouse, it does not escape the attention of God. When you're struggling with your neighbor, your coworker, it does not escape the attention of God. When you're struggling at work because of whatever, it does not escape the attention of God. He sees all and knows all. We are not alone in our frustrations and our struggles. We have hope in the omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God. So not only does he intercede for the disciples, but then he sees our struggles. He goes to them. 
He goes to the disciples. He goes and meets them right where they are in the middle. They're pulling, pulling, pulling hard. Pull, pull, pull. How far have we gotten? Six inches backwards. Pull, pull. Nine inches backwards. Oh, we're going backwards. He goes to them right where they are in the midst of their struggles. This is Mark 6, 48. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because of the wind was against them. In the fourth watch of the night, about three in the morning, he went out to them on the lake, walking on the water, through the wind, through the waves. He walked to them right where they were. He went to them first. He's the one who gives first to go to meet them right where they are in the middle of their struggles. We as human fleshly creatures, our focus is always right here in our feet, right? We focus on those struggles, we focus on our issues right in front of us. And Jesus walks right up to us and says, hey, can I help? Hey, can I meet you? Jesus initiates that contact says, let me meet you right where you are. And that's just not something he, that he just does. It's someone he is. That is his nature to come and meet us. It's his nature to come and join us in our struggle. It's in his nature to not leave us abandoned. He took the initiative then. He still takes the initiative now in 2020. You realize that? He took the initiative in 2019. We'll take the initiative again in 2021, 25, 30, 20, 35, 2050. He takes the initiative always to meet us right where we are. One of the most powerful verses that I love in Scripture lays this out in Romans 5 8 says, God demonstrated his love toward sin, toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Should sin toward us. God demonstrated his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you realize what that means? That Jesus met you at the point of your deepest struggle. That point that came in your life. And you have to say, God, I'm submitting myself to you. I'm giving myself over to you. God, I'm giving it all up for you. He met you there. At that point of your deep struggle. Where you finally said, God, I submit. God, I submit to you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Are there any times recently that you've struggled in your life? Are you struggling right now? Have you been challenged in personal relationships or behaviors that you can't seem or behaviors you can't seem to stop? Have you lived with emotions that seem to control you or your patterns that you can't break in your life? Are you facing challenges with health or finances or jobs? Are you weary of struggling, tired of it? Trying to face it on your own? Why don't you close your eyes?
is for there. And just imagine this picture in your mind. Jesus is at the top of the mountain. He sees you struggling. His heart goes out to you. Picture this in your mind. He's moved with compassion and moved to demonstrate his care for you. Meditate quietly now on the image of Jesus. However you picture him, beard, flowing robes, candle, and candles around, or sandaled feet, brown hair and skin. Picture, meditate on the picture of Jesus in your mind. Look at the expression on his face. As he sees your struggle, he's saddened by your struggle, but yet can't wait to respond. Now watch as he lifts his head and begins to pray, and he prays for you. He prays for you. He prays for you. The high priest is praying. And we are reminded that the scriptures tell us that he always lives to intercede for us. Listen to his prayer. Can you hear it? Listen to the prayer he's praying for you. He's praying directly for you. The Son of God is praying to God the Father for you. Let that truth impact your heart. The Son of God is praying. look up. On the screen behind me, there's a, a prayer. And I want you to finish this prayer. It says, Lord, as I embrace the truth that you notice me, that you care for me, I'm praying for me, my heart is moved to say, what? Even in the midst of what? Finish, complete that prayer right now. As you remember that God this universe is interceding for you. Lord Jesus, as we acknowledge this morning that many of us in this room are struggling, we are comforted in knowing that you are aware of our struggles, that you are aware of our needs. And in spite of all that is going on around us, you are praying for us. You are interceding on our behalf. God, I pray right now for everyone in this room as we come before you and acknowledge that you are seated high upon the throne. Your glory fills the temple. Your holiness is bright and shining. And in spite of your glory, you look down from heaven and you see us right in the midst of where we are catch us up, you grab our hands, and you pray for us. You're seated in our behalf. 
God, I am so thankful that you are a God who sees, that you are the God who hears, that you are the God who recognizes the needs in our lives, and you bring hope directly into our lives. You infuse us with that hope so we might rejoice in your presence. And thank you, Father God, that you are the God You are the high priest. We rejoice. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to stand right now and sing one final song on the altar. Jesus, I surrender. And then we'll take communion right after that. I'll explain how we're going to do that. Let's stand together and sing this song together. This carries us.